I do think that an old sense of literary criticism is ending. I, I, I do think that we are in the cusp of something, that a certain kind of era is passing. And I feel a sense of melancholy about it. But I think that it's partly tied to the fact that what counts as literary discourse is also changing. Because it's not just that we change, it's that the things, the objects that we care about is being transformed itself. And at times it takes us a long time of hand wringing before we realize that's what's changing, right? What counts as literature is what is changing. All the other stuff that we fight about, they are just symptomatic. That what counts as a book, how a book circulates, how it addresses the world as something meaningful, all of that is shifting. It's not a bad thing, it just means it's becoming something else. And so many times that's going to require for us to also change our practices of knowledge making. We are going to spend a whole lot of time quarreling, fighting, hand wringing before we realize that we need to really change how we do what we do. I'm speaking with Ainahi Adoro. She's an assistant professor of global black literatures in the departments of English and African cultural studies at University of Wisconsin, and the founder and editor-in-chief of Brittle Paper, a digital literary magazine focusing on African literature, which, as the New York Times has put it, is shaping Africa's literary scene by introducing powerful African storytellers to the global stage. I've been working on books for a very long time. And the life of a book on social media is a completely different life than what we imagine as literary scholars when we take a book and study it. On social media, a book is something that is very complicated, is very complex, and is something that has been pieced apart into many different things. A book is its visual culture, right, its cover. A book is the way you can use it to inspire a certain kind of emotional response from readers. A book is something that inspires you in ways that goes far beyond the book itself. I teach a course on social media, a large lecture course. And one of the things that we talk about is how books on social media are actually not meant to be read. Books are meant to ignite a response. You are engaging with the content. You're not engaging with the book. So you don't have to read a book for the book to be meaningful to you. So what does it mean to imagine a book that does not have to be read in order for it to be able to say something in the world? That really, we need to dig deep and shift the way we think about what has for so long been considered the literary object. That it's not that the novel or the book is passing or is ending, but that it's just morphing into something else. And how can our criticism meet the demand of this new thing? Welcome to the American Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siegel. This is the first of three episodes in which we'll be considering the crisis, or perhaps more constructively, as Ainahi suggests, the emergent epoch of literary criticism. 
By examining the diverse media technologies through which both criticism and its objects circulate. We'll be coming back to Einihi later in this episode to talk more about brittle paper. But first, I'm going to talk to Howard Ramsey, a professor of literature at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. He was one of the first people I interviewed for Criticism Limited. I had invited him to talk about the podcast he produces, Remarkable Receptions, which is one of my favorites, and you'll hear that part of our conversation later in the series. But in the early stages of our discussion, we kind of stumbled into a thesis about how the epoch Einihi described was brought about, a thesis that only became more compelling to me in the ensuing months. So one of the overarching theses of this series is that when we evaluate the contemporary state of criticism according to the conventions of 1945 to 2005, it appears like we're in something like a crisis, something bordering maybe even on collapse. That is, if you think the primary vehicle for criticism is print periodicals, the primary professions for critics are academia and creative writing, and among the primary purposes of criticism is canonization and taste-making, then you're going to feel as though things are pretty disrupted, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if our definition of criticism expands, yes, the state of criticism may not be so bad. Indeed, as uh, one of our previous guests, Ryan Ruby, put it, we may even be in a kind of golden age. <laughs> and certainly one reason for that abundance, if Ryan is right, is that criticism is happening in new media, in multimedia, in mixed media, And you've been on this from the jump, right? (laughs) As diverse and eclectic as your work is, it seems to me like the thing that ties it all together in both theory and practice is the cross-pollination of literary media with everything else. Comic Mm -hmm. books, television, Mm -hmm. drawing, jazz and rap. And it's not just analyzing those intersections and mashups in your traditional scholarship, but doing things like drawing attention to how a poet like William J. Harris uses his sketchbook yeah. or how novelists are informed by their taste in music and film. But you're experimenting also with new media, like mm-hmm. you know, blackboard animations and data yeah. visualizations. Oh, wow. You keep it up. <laughs> of course, podcasts. And so the question I want to open with is a kind of macro question. Like, why has multimedia cross-pollination been something so resiliently interesting Interesting to you when you're trying to understand writers and lit- literary text, and why are you so invested in experimenting with all these new media tools it, with your own critical work? Yeah, wow, thanks. I feel like there's all kinds of origins to that, but I will say this though: I agree with you and the person you're quoting. Depending on where you're looking, things are better. But I, here's where I can say that the, the intersection does show me how it is a moment of tension. So I began my blog, Cultural Front, it's no coincidence that I really up to writing about culture when I went on my first sabbatical. And so I was just thinking like, dad, what if I didn't have that? And I never really tried to make that count for tenure or anything like that. But that also tells me that's a problem, like that I didn't feel comfortable doing that. And what about all of the people who are far brighter than me, who but just didn't have enough already written to count as tenure? But they could have done that. So they probably held back on that. So anyway, I just wanted to say that I think it is a certain kind of tension there. But the simple answer to this is just 
for me, it was fun. And that's how I felt like my mind was moving. Like when I was a student, it was some very conventional kind of works we were reading that counted. Mm-hmm. But when it was just on my own terms reading, I realized that I was like, oh, I'm looking at jazz. But then I'll start saying, oh, let me look at this hip hop. Let me look at this painting. Let me look at this thing. For me, blogging was the thing that really allowed that because it allowed me to just follow various interests. And it was considered normal to do so, mm-hmm. whereas it wouldn't be normal anywhere else. When I approach things backward like that, when I start to say, oh, here's a space to add a little bit. That allowed that. So I guess it was just like the wow, it's, it's deep how the form blogging was opening me up to follow different forms in a way that like writing an essay in grad school and then writing an article as a assistant professor. It wasn't encouraging me to do that. So, wow, it's, it's, and it's weird until you mentioned that I don't think I stop enough to think about that was happening. But that's certainly what was going on with me. I just seen other bloggers too and it's funny because blogging in like is big now it seemed like things got shorter and shorter shorter form uh-huh so i was just fortunate to come along at a particular moment when blogging was this thing that was interesting and i appreciate you saying i was on it early but i felt late to blogging when i got there in what 2009 and 2010 was when i really became very active but i felt almost late to the process but now i look back and it's like fading away. Yeah. Like you, I spent a, a significant portion early in my career doing a blog. And my it, it was primarily a blog about baseball, oh, but wow. it eventually led to some opportunities to supplement my income when I was in grad school and stuff like that. But the way I started it and the way that it really served me as a graduate student was that just the way that graduate school worked, I wasn't consistently writing. I would go through these periods where I was reading, going to class, doing lists, things like that. And then every once in a while I had to produce something, but there were these long stretches where there was no direct project to write. And so the blog became a way to keep my child, keep myself fresh. Now reflecting back on that, the blog feels as though something that has gone away. But I do wonder whether having that experience opened me up to thinking about new media and and how it might be utilized. Mm -hmm. Things like podcasts, websites, YouTube channels, all things that I have some role in populating for the Center for Mark Twain Studies. Like maybe I was better prepared for those things in part because the blog was really important to me at this early stage in my career. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it did. It it gets, it gets you started. I'm over here jealous now hearing that you were doing that in grad school, because I think some of the skills I do now, like I think it would have been so helpful in grad school because I started blog like 2008 or so 2011, I was on sabbatical and I started just really actively blogging about poetry. And the reason why that's so important for me is I can go now, like I could go to my blog and I could tell you what I was blogging about in April of 2011. Mm-hmm. I can tell you what 2012, what poems I was talking about, 2013 and so forth. And so I was like, damn, it would have been so nice to have gotten a record all the way back from grad school, like being able to track that. But yeah, it was just no outlet. So it was just like, hey, those people who are out there published in the formal channels, that's who you have a record of. But think about all the activity yeah. that we were doing through grad school of the many things of blogging, just a record of these ideals or what you were thinking through at the time are just so crucial. 
Howard started his blog, Cultural Front, in September of 2008. Mine launched in March of 2007. Chris Newfield launched Remaking the University that same year, and Michael Barabay moved his personal site to the heterodox group blog, Crooked Timber. James Livingston started Politics Slash Letters in late 2009. And as we'll hear in a few minutes, Inahi Adoro started Brittle Paper as a blog in 2010. It's just a tiny cross-section of the blogs that were engaged in literary and cultural criticism during the late aughts, many of them sustained by professional critics with academic credentials and or positions, but who were also sometimes demonstrably moonlighting as amateurs, emboldened by the medium to address objects outside their primary specialization, to deploy modes like polemic or comedy, which they would not engage in their peer-reviewed work, and most importantly, I think, to experiment with multimedia criticism, embedding their blog posts with hyperlinks, emojis, photoshops, gifs, animations, data visualizations, maps and timelines, soundtracks, and soundbites. Exemplary of this ethos of blogging at its peak is Livingston's first post for politics slash letters. The Marxian historian, now emeritus from Rutgers, who you may remember from our David Graeber episode last year, wrote, I want to compromise my principles and defer my purposes in the name of reciprocity, communication, commensurability, equality. I want to live my life in jagged profiles, not as a diagrammatic unity that makes sense. I want to surprise myself, among others. You can have utopia. I'll take pragmatism and pluralism, where mistakes are made and coincidences are commonplace, where accidents happen all the time, and nobody's got your number. That's where the wild things are. Livingston then performed a lengthy historicization, close reading, and personal reflection on Maurice Sendak's Where the Wild Things Are, both the 1960s children book and the exhibit based upon it, then installed at the Morgan Library in Manhattan. As Howard suggests, the blogosphere, a term coined in 1999, entered into a phase of contraction with the popularization of social platforms during the 2010s. Frequently, Criticism blogs transformed into something else, expanding and amalgamating into digital magazines and multimodal websites, or reconstituted themselves as YouTube channels, Facebook groups, Instagram feeds, or podcasts. Dave Karp, an associate professor of media and public affairs, recently crowdsourced the question, when was the blogosphere, and got answers ranging from 1994 to 2016, before arguing for his own periodization from 2002 to 2011. Of course, he made this argument via his Substack newsletter, a medium that closely resembles, perhaps isn't meaningfully different from, a blog. Just last week, Christina Loff, a publicist for Substack, declared on her Substack that the blogging boom is back and it's happening on Substack. She began her post by noting how, when she worked for Chronicle Books during the mid-2000s, popular blogs had the capacity to drive sales as much as reviews in legacy publications, appearances on talk shows, or speaking and signing tours. As a medium for instrumental criticism, the type that induces people to purchase and sometimes even read literary texts, blogs are preferable to just about anything, excepting maybe the celebrity book club. While I hesitate to accept Loft's characterization of Substack as a respite from the data-harvesting, user-exploiting platform economy that has dominated the last decade of Web 2.0, the fact that Twitter come X and Facebook come Meta both ruthlessly throttle Substack links 
says a great deal about how they fear the reanimation of the blogosphere, how it threatens to divert revenue streams back towards content creators. The relationship between print publishing and digital media is something that resiliently interests my next guest, American Vandal regular Sherry Marie Harrison, an associate professor of English who recently became an associate dean of graduate studies and faculty success at University of Missouri. In recent years, she's been studying the circulation and reception of contemporary global Anglophone novels, particularly those by writers from the Global South. Our conversation started with a discussion of literary prizes, which you'll hear later in the series. But as had been the case with Howard, it spontaneously shifted to blogs, in this case, contemporary ones. Your question actually just made me think, too, about one way of generating reading lists that I'd forgotten about. And it's interesting, that's the one that I've forgotten about. I also follow bloggers. I follow Brittle Paper, and I follow another Instagram-based blogger, Book of Sins, which mm -hmm. is this young woman who, she's Jamaican and she lives in Trinidad, but she reads copiously. There's another blogger that lives in Jamaica. Her site is Rebel Woman Lit. These women, they, they position themselves as women who read Caribbean writers. And for a long time, I'm a Caribbeanist by training, and I diverged from that path for a while, maybe for about six years now, besides working on Marlon James, but trying to contextualize Marlon James in a larger global space rather than just a Caribbean one meant that I was reading outside of the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. And there were some books that came up that, that seemed interesting, that I wanted to get a sense of how they were being circulated. And I realized they were coming to my attention from these blogging spaces, from these spaces mm -hmm. of women who weren't necessarily academics. The woman that runs Brittle Paper is an academic. But the Caribbean-based ones are really interesting because the publishers are actually shipping books to Trinidad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> to Jamaica from here in the U.S. for these women to read and for them to talk about on their websites. And mm -hmm. so I've been calling lists from like the last three that I've read. It's because Cindy has said like, I've never read anything like this from the Caribbean before. And a part of why I'd stopped reading Caribbean novels too was that they were starting to feel really predictable to me, like because mm -hmm. I'd read so many of them, I understood the landscape and there was nothing challenging about them. Difficulty and challenge has always been a part of my critical framework. I think when you start studying something like the Caribbean that everybody thinks they know because of images that have come to them, that they know everything about this space because it exists to be sort of viewed and consumed. To encounter a book that refuses you knowing it or challenges the idea that you know it is a thing that has always been attractive for me, critically anyway. And so a part of this reading journey too, which is now extending to, to non-curated prize lists, has everything to do with finding weird books. And then bloggers too, like they're not just reading. Do we still call them bloggers, Matt, if they're like Instagram? I think that's a fascinating question. And it's funny <laughs> that this is not the first time, in the interviews I've been doing for this series, this is not the first time the blogosphere has come up as mm -hmm. a very important mechanism for thinking about criticism, which kind of was a surprise to me because as your question back to me indicates, I maybe was under the impression that this was something that no longer existed, right? But it's happening in different platforms, TikTok. Yeah, exactly. It's migrated into other feeds, but the basic infrastructure originates with 
blogs, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that Howard Ramsby talked about when we did our interview. And it strikes me when you first started describing what was happening with the big prizes, with the original Booker Prize, with the National Book Award, the the Critics Circle, those kinds of prizes, I was not surprised. You, You were describing... Uh, the conglomeration of publishing, right? That these increasingly powerful, increasingly large publishing houses with their very refined marketing campaigns and their deep ties to legacy media are able to pick and choose which books they want to get on these lists, at least to some degree. But as your narrative unfolded, it exposed something that I think we've been seeing over and over again in this series, which is, yes, There is this massive infrastructure that has a considerable amount of power for making a kind of contemporary canon, but it is being ameliorated to some extent by social media, by a blogosphere, by these more diffuse and diverse powers, which it sometimes is trying to manipulate, right? Sending books to Jamaican bloggers, but doesn't really exercise the same kind of control, doesn't have the same weight over those diffuse means of contemporary bite-sized criticism mm-hmm. right, that it has over the New Yorker or the New York Times mm-hmm. magazine or something like that. And it, it strikes me as in some ways, like what's happening with the Oscars recently, where on on the one hand, Hollywood seems to be defined by franchises. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But at, on the other hand, the Academy is getting more diverse, right? It's increased its membership. And so there is this tension between a consolidation of the infrastructure, but then an expansion of the mechanisms of reception. Mm-hmm. And how those things work together and how that informs our criticism, I think, is really interesting. Yeah. And also the shape that our criticism takes, right? Yeah. A thing that we've been talking about here in our program is changing the final assignment that we have English majors do. We used to have them do a capstone project where, you know, they write like the thesis-based paper on some literary something. And they're looking to change that capstone to something that is more storytelling-based. Tell me the story of your major. Mm-hmm. And telling the story of your English major is something that we're imagining. I say we like I'm doing that, but they're in, in my department are imagining now as beyond producing written criticism. Mm-hmm. Right. And one of the options is a podcast. One of the options is maintaining, I, and they're not quite sure how this works because we're English professors and we don't really know, but like maintaining a TikTok account or reels on Instagram mm-hmm. with, with content that demonstrates literary engagement in these bites. Yeah. Like you're saying, that isn't the New York Times book review. That isn't some kind of other long form type of deal to represent a specific kind of engagement with the literature, but something that looks more true to life with how, as you say, like a sort of fan based relationship to the text, but also something that engages with media and production in a way that corresponds to career readiness, yeah. uh, corresponds more clearly in our moment to career readiness than yeah. the- a thesis, right? It, 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 there was a time where the review essay or the critical intervention essay, like those were products that were legible, mm-hmm. like they are performing this particular kind of work. 
and they are demonstrating, you know, a set of coherent skills, maybe prep people for the job market to some extent, certainly prep people for graduate programs. Certainly the latter is increasingly not the ambition. But what the former looks like is changing. And absolutely, having produced a semester-long TikTok feed mm-hmm. about a, a sort of specific realm of literature or culture, that's probably more legible for many yeah. of the jobs these students want. Mm-hmm. Social media marketing, publishing industry, that's more legible than having written a paper comparing three novels or three poetry collections. Yeah, that thing there where the goal is increasingly not to go to graduate school is crucial here, right? Yeah if that's not where the majority of your students are going. And honestly, I don't know if that was where the majority of students were going with English majors to begin with. There is a way where even being compelled to produce that at the end wasn't necessarily adhering to what career readiness needs existed in terms of legible transfer of skills. From it was school. maybe just easier for professors to imagine that exactly. was where they were going. Exactly. And I want to say in these last couple of years, there are those of us who were always trying to think more creatively about these assignments, but there's something about having to move all of your teaching remotely that mm-hmm. opens up all kinds of pedagogical capacity around media. Yeah that is transforming how we go about teaching students about mm-hmm. literary criticism and what that might look yeah. like. Certainly curation has become something we all have to think about mm-hmm. in our class prep to mm-hmm. a degree that maybe we didn't have to before, just mm-hmm. by virtue of its taking place increasingly in ed tech spaces in remote learning spaces. The mixture of curation and criticism that takes place in a higher ed classroom to what goes on an Instagram feed or a TikTok Mm -hmm. feed, I think there is a kind of direct relationship. I think so too. I think so. I mean, to the extent that, you know, I I, I hear the voices in my head saying there's all kinds of criticism about how mobilizing and deploying these particular things inside of social media platforms come with their own problems, right? In terms of thinking that everyone can make it when they can create content and you're constantly producing content for a platform that isn't necessarily paying you to do that kind of work. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, I think... We get fixated on the things we get fixated on in literature because we are fans of those things. And there is something about the the separation between the seriousness of scholarship and the unseriousness of fandom that the latter thing lends itself more to the social media-based curation and then the former thing exists in the separate serious space of print, if you will. Yeah. And... The micro struggle that happens inside of departments as people try to revise what these culminating projects for our students are going to be has everything to do with how you think about these different institutions that represent literary critical engagement in this moment. And I wouldn't say the essay-based criticism, long-form essay-based criticism is going away as an apparatus. But I also think, and you and I have talked about this before, I also think it's fast becoming not the only medium and we want to catch up. I should admit, 
Some of the things my guests and I have been known to denigrate about the contemporary ecosystem for criticism, for instance, the demand for immediacy, the short shelf life of works of digital criticism, and the emphasis on personal branding that contributes to the overuse of sometimes narcissistic first-person narration. These things might reasonably be traced back to the peak of the blogosphere. But as criticism increasingly escapes the boundedness of print genres, I think we can look to blogs as a basis for that too. By the time I spoke with Anahia Doro, I knew I was going to want to trace how Brittle Paper evolved from a graduate student blog into a digital hub for all things African literature, with hundreds of contributors producing not only criticism, but creating and curating journalism, fiction, audiovisual content, and more. Brittle Paper is hard to define, in part because of the ways that digital culture has shifted what it means to create content around literature or any kind of cultural object, in fact. So typically we had, in the literary sphere, we had magazines, journals, and these are all different kinds of spaces for producing different kinds of literary content. But digital culture has made those types of categories obsolete. And so Brittle Paper stands at that intersection. We are a news platform, so we create a ton of news content around African literature. So even the very idea of news and literature itself, mm -hmm. it's sort of novel, right? We don't think of literature as a space that produces news content. Mm -hmm. So we cover what's going on in the global African literary space. Who is winning what awards? Who is publishing what book? who is running what festival and things like that. But then we also have an arm that is our more traditional literary aspect, which is publishing original fiction, poetry, essays, things like that. It's a very special project of ours, and I hope I get to talk about it more because it's our space for building a community of emergent voices. Most of them are based on the continent. These are very young writers who are just passionate about writing and we really want to help to build that kind of talent base for African literary culture. So that's two things that we do, news content, original publishing. We also have a writing course. So if you go to Brittle Paper, there's a place called The Writing Room where we have five courses that you can take for free and it is focused on the basics of fiction writing. And again, that's also part of our wanting to support emergent African literary voices. And Brittle Paper Platform itself, we curate books. That's another thing that we are very known for. So if you are a book lover and you just want to be abreast with everything going on in terms of African book publishing, Brittle Paper is where you come to. It's a space that unites readers, the publishing industry, and authors. We have a book database that helps us to track what has been published all through the year and what's forthcoming about three years out. So it's a very big production. We write book reviews, traditional book reviews, but we also do all kinds of content around book. We try to explore the visual culture around books. We also try to capture the lives of writers around their books. So just to create this beautiful space where 
books become this thing that we enjoy to read, but things that also inspire a particular kind of lifestyle. I'm so glad you opened with talking about the notion of this kind of transitional time in literary studies because of the changes to the mediums through which we do our work. It would be very misleading, given all that you just laid out, to call Brittle Paper in its current form a blog. It publishes such a wide range of authors, a wide range of genres, and in several mediums even. But as I understand it, it started as a blog when you were a graduate student at Duke. And this is something that has emerged organically as I've been doing interviews for this series, that there's a lot of people who are doing really interesting work in literary studies in a range of different mediums who have a, a background in blogging. Howard Ramsby and I discovered this very early on. Uh, I was talking to him and he was very insistent that blogging was such a formative experience for him as a literary critic. And so I was hoping you would also answer that question. When and why did you start Brittle Paper in that initial form? And how did it shape your critical practice to be doing this blogging before it exploded into the kind of digital hub that it now is? I'm so happy that you brought up the question of blogging, because as people of a certain age who inhabit bitted the transition through these different digital technological spaces, it's really gratifying to look back because mm -hmm. it's a kind of historical view that we can bring to it. And for me, blogging is a pivotal moment. I started Brittle Paper 2010, but I'd already been captivated by the blogging scene about three years before. So the height of blogging as a form yeah of producing content around individual interests and also the very idea of building a community around yourself and your ideas. I followed all kinds of different blogs. I was enamored of the form. And so when I got to Duke University, you've been to grad school and you know how brutal the early years can be. And for me, Duke was particularly tough because I felt like I was just thrown into the midst of a very fast-paced, intense universe of intellectual work. I felt like I had a lot to catch up on. And I'm taking these crazy courses. I took two semesters of the entire gamut of Nietzsche's work <laughs> with um, Frederick Jameson. Like mm -hmm. we started from the beginning and to the very end in two classes. So these are like deep dive intensive studies. I was both exhausted, but also deeply inspired by everything I was learning. And again, I realized that, okay, blogging has always been the way that people explore all kinds of strange things that did not really fit into the typical idea of what literary practice is that so well maybe I could create this blog where I share my frustrations as a graduate student but where I also begin to write things that are inspired by the amazing world of graduate school classrooms but that could help me find a space to play and just explore my own ideas and that's how Bristol Paper started so if you go back to the beginnings, you will see very strange kinds of content. You can tell literally what classes I was taking. When I was taking VY Modimbe's existentialism course, because I was producing these very strange things inspired by those. 
But then I think by the time I got into blogging, it was already at the phase of its decline. Twitter was around for about four years by the time I started Brittle Paper. And it was clearly becoming a new space competing against blogs in terms of creating a fan base and a community. In 2010, Instagram came. Mm -hmm. And I think Instagram was the death knell for the traditional blogging. It continued on for many years and it's still on, but that really beautiful moment of ferment where people were creating all kinds of cool blogs, yeah. I think it was at a decline. And so by 2012, I realized that blogs are dying, but I was also seeing that there was this emergence of African literary work. It was popping up everywhere. It was clear that there was this new energy. Writers were publishing. They were making spaces in social media. And I just felt that someone needed to capture this magic. Mm. I felt that we were at the cusp of something. And I just wanted to be in there documenting it feverishly. So that's how in 2012, Brittle Paper moved from a personal general philosophy literature blog to a platform for African literature. And it's just expanded since then, just with me experimenting with different things, but also trying to meet the demands of the culture and the industry. So yeah, blogs were really key to Brittle Paper. I, so I have a couple of follow-ups there, but I, I want to start with where you ended. What do you know about who's using Brittle Paper, how they're using it? Like, how do you understand the audience who Brittle Paper has adapted to serve? As you said there at the end, right? You're figuring out how to cover this somewhat big amorphous niche of African literary culture. What do you know about the people who are reading it, consuming it, other than just the numbers, the traffic, right? That's one of the questions we always ask about the Mark Twain Studies site is we can look and see how many people are coming and where they're going on the site, but we don't really know who they are. Do you have any sense of, of how your site is being used and by who? I have an inkling. I think Bristol Paper has become a confluence for different interests in the African publishing space. So readers like it for the ways that it tells them what to read, gives them guidance on what to read and what news to pay attention to. Because as digital space becomes more crowded, the role of the curator becomes much more entrenched. Yes. Right? Um, people need more guidance on what to read, what to focus on, what to anchor them. And I think that people look to us for that. And so we have readers who are based in the US, in the UK, on the continent, who love African books and they see us as the starting point for exploring that experience. Then of course, anywhere readers congregate, <laughs> you have the industry get interested. Uh, yeah. Publishers get interested. It's like a watering hole, you know? Mm -hmm. they want, so what's going on? Why are people coming to this place? Yeah. And so we have a lot of industry people who have relationships with us, publishers, publicists, who look to us to help to get their book in front of eyeballs. Mm -hmm. And then you have authors 
who are eager to connect with readers who see us also as a place to um, expand their influence and their reach. And I will say that we, we stand within this intersection of interests. And of course, I will say one of the outliers will be scholars mm -hmm. who look on with interest at what is going on. And from time to time, they dip in. Brittle Paper has been tapped for studies on digital culture and African literature. And so it's, it does feel good to be at the center of this wave and helping to bring people together in a cultural context that is designed to pull people apart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that watering hole metaphor, and it corresponds to some of the other sites and hubs that, that I've been talking about and thinking about through this series, that if you build something, it's amazing like what it draws to it and what then it generates out of it in ways that you never anticipate or expect when you initially design it. I wanted to talk about another form of cultivation that you mentioned earlier in our conversation that has to be a little bit of a shift and a challenge as somebody with a sort of academic background. You said the sort of front of Brittle Paper is a kind of news organization, but you mentioned you're now producing original content, nonfiction, literary essays, short stories, poetry. So how did that aspect of the site get started and what are you looking for? How are you finding finding people to publish their original literature on the site? And then how, how is it shaping what the site does to actually not just producing commentary on literature, criticism on literature, but side by side with original work? We don't go out seeking for submissions. We are just known in the community for what we do. We get about maybe 300 plus submissions every month. But wow. we are only able to publish a tiny percentage of that. And young writers see us as a space to share their work and build an audience. And we love that. We don't go for the big fish. We are not trying to publish big time authors. We are not trying to be the New Yorker of Africa. We are not interested in that at all. Our original publishing is geared towards writers who are coming into the scene. These are young people who are just developing the interest and the passion for writing. And we want to give them a space to affirm what they are doing. In fact, I, I don't think that we are doing enough because when I look at our statistics, I'm like 300 people submit their work. We publish about 10% of that. I'm more interested in the 90% that we don't publish because what I see there is opportunity, is the chance to build capacity, is the chance to foster talent. And I just wish we had the kind of funding to really create a space where we could train writers and help them to become better at their work. And it's something that I'm very committed to and that I would like to keep exploring. All the content that we have from Brittle Paper kind of help to, you know, co-constitutively provide visibility. So the news content brings people who end up staying for the original content and vice versa. 
so that the goal is really just to create a space that people come to and that everyone can find visibility. Mm-hmm. I mean, that must be a tremendous burden in terms of just the workload of 300 submissions. I, 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 that's a lot to have to just comb through and read and, and choose the 10%. How are you managing, you know, as Brittle Paper has clearly grown dramatically over the last now, what, 13 years since you originally launched it, how are you managing the kind of labor intensification that comes with that growth? <laughs> you know, somebody like you would understand when you're not in the world of digital content creation, it's hard to understand how intensive it is. I have a team that I work with. I don't read by myself any longer. I have an amazing team that I work with and yeah, they just, they brilliant, they are sharp, they understand the space and most importantly, they are passionate about African literature. Two of my team members are graduate students in the English department and we've worked together for a couple of years now and They've used the brittle paper as a space to build their skills on digital content creation, social media content management. And it's amazing to see them blossom and really take control of the space. And our submissions editor, Tasib Akram, is based in Cape Town in South Africa, and she is amazing. She has a great relationship with these writers that we mentor and they love working with her. Yeah, I'm just I blessed that we have a very good team. Ainehi, Sherry and Howard are all scholars I would point to, though they are hardly alone, who are managing to celebrate the literary paradoxically by dissociating it from the medium, print which literary critics have historically fetishized. One of the things that surprised me about John Guillory's professing criticism, an aspect not emphasized by the reviews I had read, was how much affinity it showed for media studies. And indeed, it diagnoses the fetishization and prioritization of print as a key component of the disciplinary crisis. I had intended to ask him about this, but he actually nudged me towards the topic at the very beginning of our conversation, as you'll hear. I was pleased that you wanted to talk about the conclusion because almost no one in either the reviews or the other interviews I've done has talked about the conclusion or asked me about the conclusion. And that suggested to me that there was something in the conclusion that was not coming through. And in the absence of the conclusion, the general tone of the book I think came across as much more pessimistic uh, Mm. than I intended. Now, the conclusion was not a kind of optimistic program for the future. It wasn't a program at all. And that's something that you might want to talk about. I very intentionally did not do the kind of um, bulleted list that I know lots of my colleagues like to do when they write for the Chronicle or whatever. So we should do this and this. I intentionally did not do that because it seems to me that real changes in the discipline have to be organic. They can't really be dictated by a single scholar, and they certainly can't take that programmatic form. They won't take that programmatic form. They just won't. People will object to this point and that point. So the changes have to be organic, or they're just not going to work. 
So I didn't see it as my as my task in the book because the, the book I saw as a work of both history and analysis. I didn't see it as my task to offer a program for transforming the discipline <laughs> closer to my heart's desire or anyone's desire. Now I do have ideas I can talk about. I do have ideas about why I think the the discipline needs to be related more closely to the media concept and media studies. So I'd be happy to return to that at any point if you wanted to. Let's uh, just, the advantage of this is that I can, regardless of what we talk about and in what order, mm -hmm. if it makes sense to reorder it, I can always do that. And sure. so let's just start there. That's one of the things I wanted to, mm -hmm. to ask you about mm -hmm. is that sort of strain of your argument felt to me like it pulled in a couple different directions, although in ways that I think were very generative, right? You show that the progression of literary criticism is a progression of increasing specialization from a kind of coherent focus on all mediums of writing to this complex classification of genres, forms, temporal periods, national mm -hmm. literature, political groups, all, you know. And there seems to be some desire within the book and even within the conclusion to return to writing as the sort of organizing object of criticism. But you also mm -hmm. proclaim that urgency to address non-textual forms of literary entertainment and engagement, right? And as somebody who has recently become the director of a media studies program, right. who is doing sort of literary studies in podcast form, that uh, notion that you introduced that we need to see this as not just writing, but listening, reading, mm -hmm. oration, all of these things mm -hmm. can be part of literary studies. That was very appealing to me. Me, and as you know, also plays to the very real challenge of our discipline in the classroom, which is that students, reading is not their primary means of entertainment, right? Literature is not the primary medium with which they engage. And so how do we get them to take the tools of literary studies and apply them to film, to television, right, you know, maybe right. TikTok and Twitter, right? And so I found those two arguments both very appealing in their own ways, but also pulling in different directions. And so I was hoping you would talk a little bit about that. I understand the, the perception that they're pulling in two different directions. I think I would probably want to say that I wanted to pull away from the discipline of literary study for the sake of ultimately coming back to it in a way that would regenerate it and connect it with, with all of those media forms outside the province of literature narrowly defined. As you noted, the uh, trajectory of historical reconstruction in the book runs from the history of writing in the Baconian sense, Historia Literarum, everything that is written. Mm -hmm down to the present where literature is very narrowly defined as imaginative and fictional genres. We're stuck with that, but it's not actually a bad thing to be stuck with that because there's so much literature, there's such an accumulation of literature and it's fantastic and it's still being produced in great numbers. Now, globally in English, it's impossible not to see literature as a global phenomenon deserving of study in its global context. I wanted to get away from the notion that literary scholars and literary critics, in order to do interesting and relevant work, had to get away from literature, had to exit 
the discipline and find a place elsewhere in, in other media forms, otherwise find themselves condemned to irrelevance. Or alternatively, just try to read literature as though it were the equivalent in social effect and position as other media forms. Both, both of those, I think, are not really uh, realistic ways uh, to look at the discipline and, and the, the future of the discipline. So what I'm trying to do in the book, and this is really the view from Moses on the mountaintop, I can take us this far, but farther than that, I think it's going to be difficult to establish the norms of a reconstructed discipline that on the one hand wasn't apologizing for literature and on the other hand wasn't making literature more than it can be at the present moment. A possible future, not a likely future, but a possible future for the discipline for me, the future that would be ideal for me would be one in which the study of literature recovered its relation to the domain of writing in general. And here, what I'm thinking about is writing as medium and literary study as it emerged in antiquity and in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and down to the present as a version of media studies. But it's a version of media studies in which this particular medium of writing is at the center. We happen to have, as literary critics and literary scholars, not you anymore because you've now moved into media, but we have these two satellite quasi-disciplines. They have a relation to literature which is not really capable of being severed, but at the same time, it's a kind of satellite relation. And these two satellite quasi-disciplines are composition and creative writing. And I'm talking now about what lies beyond the end of the book, <laughs> where I left the story at the end of the book with a gesture toward, toward media. That gesture is first toward writing and an attempt to recouple writing with reading because the study of literature is essentially a discipline of reading and scholarship even when it is written it is still the writing of reading so i see the discipline as having this penumbra of not at the present fully disciplinary organized enterprises one of which is composition one of which is creative writing but there's a lot more to be done with the concept of writing as a medium it's one of the things that I'm going to try to do in, in future projects if I should live so long, because I'm interested in the concept of prose as medium, and I've already done some work on that and published some work on that, and I'm going to continue to work away at that in the future. Writing is something that emerged as absolutely crucial during the period of high theory, and there was a moment with the greatest impact of Derridian theory on the discipline where there was a universalization of writing. Everything was writing. Everything was some version of writing. That went too far and the discipline fell back from that and wanted to re-emphasize or emphasize the qualities of visual and auditory media that were different from writing as a medium. But this penumbra of mediality, where the mediality is specific to writing, it exists and in my kind of spatial conception of it, 
surrounding the discipline of literature in its narrow and I think ultimately too narrow definition as imaginative and fictional forms of writing. Uh, I think we went quite too far in, in our specialization of the discipline to imaginative and fictional genres of writing and lost a sense of how to connect literature to writing in the in a larger sense of its mediality. And then beyond that, writing as medium is the whole world, the whole system of media as it's been organized explosively from the later 19th to the 21st centuries, because we're talking now about many new forms of media. So what's happened? It, it, it's a peculiar setup where Literary critics are almost embarrassed by literature, but it, uh, on the other hand, want to make overstated claims for it when we know that, in fact, other media forms have much greater impact and we don't really know how to describe the situation of literature right now. Even though writing has exploded in, in numbers of pieces of writing of all kinds from its former kind of highly specialized, very small locations or sites in Western and even world culture, how do we situate literature, if we are indeed scholars of literature, in relation to writing as medium, and then beyond that to the whole system of media? This is what I'm trying to figure out. And I didn't have, by the time I finished the book, I didn't have a worked out argument to offer about that. I think I'm getting a little closer to this now. And if you'll indulge me, I want to bring to this reflection the story of film studies, which, as we know, when it first started to establish itself in the university, found a home in English departments, to a certain extent in the language departments as well, but, but for the most part in English departments, in any case, literature departments. Now, why did that happen? This is a visual medium. There's a big overlap with narrative, with the relation between script and film. So there's a connection, yes, but it shouldn't have been the case that film studies had to be sheltered in literature departments. Film studies ought to have achieved parity with literary mm -hmm. studies. That didn't happen. There are film studies departments around, around the country, but there are far fewer of them there, than there should be, considering the fact that film and, it, and its video successors, these are really the dominant media of our time, just by far more socially impactful than literature. What are we going to do with that? I think that alliance was the best way to go, but the alliance that did happen was opportunistic and a kind of shift because universities were not authorizing the formation of film studies departments. I know this from my experience at Yale. There was enormous resistance to the establishment of a film studies major and department. They wanted film studies just to be distributed around to whoever would pick up this or that scholar, this or that course. So something ought to have happened in the evolution of the disciplines, which I think would have been better for literature. It would have been better for literature to find its mm. proper place in relation to media 
then to have it continue to occupy a kind of primary institutional position where it suffered from this conflict between the reality of its position in relation to media and the overstatement of its, its, its political and social effects by the literary professoriate. I understand exactly how you found your way out to media studies, many people before you have as yeah. well. But the reason for this is that we haven't solved the problem of the system of media. And we haven't solved it in such a way as to find the proper place for literature in that system. As I noted earlier in the series, the title Criticism Limited was inspired by two sources. The essay by John Crow Ransom, Criticism Incorporated, which we discussed extensively in episodes 2, 6, 7, and 8, but also Jacques Derrida's Limited Incorporated, a 1988 collection of essays in dialogue with other critical theorists, most of which had been originally published a decade earlier. Derrida himself calls the book very difficult, overdetermined, and extremely intricate. Far be it from me to provide an adequate summary. But as far as this series is concerned, it fills three gaps. Most obviously, Derrida uses the metaphor of incorporation and specifically limited liability with ambivalence and irony that echoes both Ransom and Bruce Robbins, as we discussed at the beginning of the Chicago fight arc. The late Michael Tratner even goes so far as to argue that in Limited Incorporated, Derrida evinces a debt to the Chicago School economist Milton Friedman, part of the trio of pirates we met in episode seven. Derrida applies the metaphor of incorporation to another trio of academics, who he accuses of navel-gazing, naive conservatism, and nepotism, circling their wagons in the face of a challenge to their doctrine. The essays that make up Limited Incorporated appeared during those bad old days of high theory we discussed in the second episode. And in the text, Derrida defends his universalization of writing, what John Guillory just alluded to as one of the Derridian concepts with greatest impact on the discipline. Limited Incorporated is not the only version of this argument, but it may be the most aggressive, by Derrida's own admission. In the opening essay, Signature Event Context, Derrida argues that iterability, citationality, makes everything, including pictorials and telecommunications, reducible to writing. I read Limited Incorporated against two backdrops. First, as Tratner does, the rapid financialization of the global economy, led by Paul Volcker with the express aim of prolonging American supremacy, as mentioned in episode three. But also, as importantly, I think, the initial experiments with hypertext applications at places like Stanford and MIT. Networked hypertext applications would eventually accelerate financialization to a speed beyond the ken of its alleged regulators, which is perhaps the defining feature of too late capitalism. These applications were developed with the aspiration to prove Derrida's claim, to make every imaginable form of representation so perfectly reducible to a written code that the distinction between the original and a duplicate produced with that source code 
between the map and the territory, between identity and the doppelganger, between simulacra and real, vanishes. The cyber utopians of Silicon Valley who we met in season seven of The American Vandal proceeded with none of the ambivalence Derrida shows about his claim. That is, about the inherent crisis of meaning which follows written language through time and space. A crisis Tratner homologizes to the dissolving notion of monetary value that follows Volcker's floating currencies in 1973. Here's a key passage from Tratner's 2004 essay. Derrida is looking back at the productivist economics of the 19th century from the viewpoint of the consumerist economics of the 20th, when the theory that physical production is the central engine of the economic system no longer holds. Derrida finds in theories of signs a parallel to this economic transformation. Production is no longer the source of meaning of signs. Rather, a code produces meaning without distinct acts of production. Meanings are then like a stockpile of objects waiting to be used. But Derrida's project hardly produces images of freedom, rather the code takes over, creating its automatic effects. Derrida focuses attention on one small sign of the inability of individuals to control even their own possessions, they cannot control their signatures. He lists coded signatures as one of the new forms of money. Without a fundamental concept of production, there is no producer of signs, and hence writers lose their sovereignty over meaning. Nations similarly lost their sovereignty over money as a result of 1970s economics, when currencies are defined entirely by their relations to other currencies. The market and the float, not by seeming reference to objects, the notion of sovereignty changes. There is a gap between the meaning of a given monetary sign and the intended meaning that the sovereign issuing nation would like to assign it. Currency gains some part of its meaning or value from the international situation. A daily posting of rates of exchange is like a constantly shifting dictionary. It is the crying of the dollar every day, letting the market shape the code itself into a constantly changing system. There is no sovereign powerful enough to control the meaning of money. We could even adapt this economic model into an alternative interpretation of Derrida's account of linguistic signs. To use a linguistic sign requires not merely an intention on the part of the person using it, but a system of exchange, a market, that determines how others will make use of the sign. One can intend to use a word in a certain way, only to discover that people take the word differently. Linguistic interactions are exchanges partly determining the meanings that words carry, and hence shaping the models upon which individuals build their utterances. The results of utterances shape the intentions that go into further utterances. Such results even shape what a person thinks the intentions that supposedly preceded an utterance were. Parasitism, a form of borrowing and indebtedness, replaces production in Derrida's theory as it does in the economic history of the 20th century. Derrida's notion of parasitism is the final thing that attracted me to Limited Incorporated. You will recall Mark Twain's parasitic metaphor for criticism. The critic is like a dung beetle, Twain says, because he deposits his egg in somebody else's dung, otherwise he could not hatch it. But Twain was more sympathetic to the role of the critic than the abject and degrading metaphors he uses for criticism might let on. His corpus shows his familiarity with entomology, for instance, and the role of insects, fungi, and bacteria in the flourishing of agricultural ecosystems. My, perhaps vulgar, synthesis of Twain and Derrida proposes a healthful, if parasitic, role for the critic as the custodian of multimedia literary networks. I think, far more important than any canonizing or revelatory address critics might make towards their literary objects, is how expansive corpuses of rigorous criticism proliferate sets of lexical, historical, and generic connections across history and geography, a web of philologies, genealogies, historicizations, and heuristics which buttress humanity against crises and meaning. As with Keynesian economy, 
The goal is not to entirely preclude such crises. It's a futile goal. Neoliberalism chases fascism in the name of escaping it. The Keynesian goal is merely to delay, forestall, reduce, mitigate, arbitrate, mediate, patch the thin and precarious crust of market economy, or in this case, linguistic meaning, in hopes the inevitable crises may be ameliorated and metabolized. Derrida himself epitomizes this in the commentary on South African apartheid he published for Critical Inquiry in 1986, and which he further discusses in dialogue with Gerald Graff in the afterword to Limited Incorporated. Apartheid, Derrida writes, the more it's talked about, the better. The saturation of apartheid discourse is not a permission structure for the systemic discrimination being named but rather, in Derrida's words, a call to condemn, to stigmatize, to combat, to keep in memory. Graff perceives in Derrida's descriptions of apartheid a contradiction to the instability of interpretive contexts he has identified elsewhere in Limited Incorporated. But Derrida sees no such contradiction. I consider the context of that discussion to be very stable and very determined. It constitutes the object of agreement sufficiently confirmed so that one might count on the ties that are stable and hence demonstrable, linking words, concepts, and things, as well as on the difference between the true and the false. And hence one is able to denounce errors and even dishonesty and confusions. But the very fact that, impelled by this or that interest, my critics can fail in this way, make errors, not understand, read badly, not respect the pragmatic, grammatical or moral rules. The fact that I have been obliged to remind them of it. All this confirms that the context is only relatively stable. The ties between words, concepts, and things, truth and reference, are not absolutely and purely guaranteed by some metacontextuality or metadiscursivity. Graf makes a mistake common to Derridian theory, a mistake which has risen to the level of stereotype. He confuses contingency with nihilism. Truth holds, Derrida corrects him, so long as the networks of words, concepts, events, shared experiences are sustained by communal attention to and negotiation of them. The web of ties linking words to stabilize meaning and make it demonstrable is an aspiration of all writing, but hypertext attempts to perfect it, tragically. Encode the context, the contingencies. By iteration across time and space, make it impossible for apartheid to become a thing other than what it was for those who experienced it. The cyber-utopians hoped the internet would make the stability of discourse automatic and permanent. Oops. Had they accomplished this, perhaps criticism would be obsolete. Because the parasitic critic is a custodian of contingency. Our attention to the eroding infrastructures of text and context is what welds the past to the present. And during periods of technological revolution, that custodial work involves not just maintenance of webs of meaning in one medium, but across divides and disruptions between media. I think this is what Ryan Ruby captures in his epic of the poet critic, Context Collapse. The line that you have in Context Collapse that I believe comes at the end of a section something along the lines of not poet critic, but poet scholar, right? Mm -hmm. 
which marks a kind of historical moment. One of the things I love about that poem is that, as you have described it, it's an epic poem about the history of poetry and thus is also about the history of the criticism of poetry because it is doing historicist work. But it, because of its form, you allude to Pope and others who have, have tried to do criticism in the form that criticism is taking as its object. And there is very much a, a historicist moment captured in that line where we have the poet critic archetype of Eliot Pound, whoever, the, and then this shift into the sort of post-war formalization, institutionalization of criticism and, and the queasy politics that go along with that, as well as the creation of the academy as we now know it. Maybe this is a kind of rough segue is that one of the things that, that I love about Context Collabs is that it is also this work of media theory. Okay? The history of, of poetry that you are telling us is about how poetry shifts as a product of the mediums of its distribution and circulation. You have a great deal of affection for familiarity with the sort of poet critic age, the modernist age. And what follows is something that we sometimes dub postmodernism, but I am inclined to believe we are in something else now. <laughs> right? And there's no better way to make that argument it then through the kind of media history that context collapse clearly uh, elevates. There has clearly been a shift in the media environment of the last, say, 15 years, 20, however you want to demarcate it. And so I'd like you to talk about that. How has the changing media environment either created or affected the way we think about what criticism does and its relationship to what poetry does and how that poetry is changing also as a result of that shifting media environment. Yeah. Oh, th this is a great question. There's so many strands here. I'm going to, uh, let's see, how shall I organize my thoughts on this matter? I'll start with criticism. One of the things that's happening in criticism is that, okay, no, pause. All literature right now, which by which I mean all written literature, specifically literature that is primarily distributed in print form, which is still the, for now at least, still the er media form. All of that has undergone a reduction of its status in the media system. It used to be the, sort of the, the queen of the media, literate media, and now it's one medium among many. And that is a radically novel situation going back at a very minimum, that is a radically novel situation, going back at least to 150 years when you get mass literacy. But if you wanted to trace it all the way back to Gutenberg, you could do that as well. One thing that's happening in criticism outside of the academy is that criticism is interfacing with new digital media in a different way than it is inside the academy. And one of the, the things that, that accounts for this golden age of criticism that I'm talking about is that there's a relationship between the critical essay, the podcast, the tweet, the thread that is facilitated by the current media system in a much better way than in the academy where literature is still primarily produced as a written text for readers 
of a very limited distribution capacity. It's also, criticism specifically, also engages with the new media system much more effectively, and this is what's actually genuinely scary, it's engaged with it much more effectively than fictional narrative. I don't know if you've noticed this as well, I don't have the statistics on this, but just from a purely anecdotal observation, you can let me know whether you agree or not, the essay genre, whether it's a critical essay, whether it's a personal essay, gets through the distribution mechanism of new media much more effectively than a short story. Such that, as a form of written media, still a form of literate media, it is also having a golden age because practitioners of the things which are being criticized, novelists, poets, personal essayists, are turning to this particular medium because it is very effective as a residual literate media that can really still compete on a thing like social media. So I think I could have expressed that better, but I, but I think that the, that one of the things that is worth talking about vis-a-vis criticism is the way that it is more effectively assimilating the challenge of new media than both academic criticism on the one hand and also fictional narrative on the other. As for the poets, my theory in context collapse is both the one you described, so there, it's twofold, and I think the one that you described is the more defensible theory. <laughs> it's the theory that the dissemination, storage, the media features of poetry are fundamental determinants of the particular form it takes over time. The second part of the thesis of of the poem is that poets are the early adopters of new media technology, and that poetry is fundamentally an early kind of experimentation with new media. Whether we're talking about the oral poetries of the Greek Dark Ages, all the way up to the present, Every time there's a new media introduced, the people who are using it, who are playing with it, who are producing it, are themselves poets. It it almost happens like clockwork, whether it's manuscripts, print, different kinds of improvements to the printing press. And most recently, one sees this in the large language models, ChatGPT. Poets have been experimenting with computer-generated poetry for well on 60 to 70 years now. And of course, it is not at all surprising that the, f- the very first experiments that are performed with ChatGPT, we're talking about ChatGPT 3 now, I guess, is trying to write an Emily Dickinson poem or a Shakespeare sonnet. And I do not think that's a coincidence at all, because one of the things that poetry does is it's sort of a formal research and development space for media. And so I think in that respect, looking at the history of poetry is particularly significant to the present because it is a way of looking in the future, the future of media, as it were. Yeah, I I love that. It's really compelling. And it it also has the, the added benefit of justifying why this fringe art of poetry needs to continue to be read, circulated, institutionalized, protected in some cases. And I just want to comment on that, right? Of course, poetry is, to us, appears to be a fringe art. But of course, poetry is the art par excellence, right? Poetry is the foundational, at a minimum, literary artwork. And it maintains its status as this master genre until the late 18th century when it gets replaced, when this master genre gets replaced by literature and the relationship between poetry and prose shifts. But I think it, it appears fringe to us, and by us, people living in North America and Western Europe. If you 
ever end up in a country that is outside that space, right, mm-hmm. you will find the culture of poetry is very much alive, both as a thing that people memorize, they quote them in everyday ordinary conversation. And in that respect, it's not a remnant. It's not the word I want to use because that sounds primitive. But there is a, a connection to a very ancient relationship to speech and language that by contrast, I would say in Northern Europe and in North America has been lost and subsumed. And it's a very long history of how that came to be the case. But it's always there. It is ineradicable in a way. And I think what makes poetry so very special is that even in the media conditions operating in our culture, the poets are still performing their sort of transcendental function, their transcendental social function, as the people who are performing the first experiments in the relationship between the economy, technology, social organization, and language, and the experience Mm -hmm. being a language user. The foundations and the perhaps counterintuitive relationship between literary forms, poetry, novels, short stories, and critical forms, essays, book reviews. This is one of the things I wanted to ask you about. Twain has a very a very complex relationship to criticism and an evolving one over the course of his life. He's not often a critic himself, but when he is, he's an incredibly effective one. And that's something I'll, I'll talk about elsewhere in the series. But w- when he comes to the stage in life where he starts to recognize criticism as something necessary, he uses a metaphor of the, the dung beetle. And he says that the critic symbol is the dung beetle. He deposits his egg in someone else's dung, other, otherwise he cannot hatch it. <laughs> And I was reading Andy Hines's book, and we, we talked about it in an, our conversation as well. Langston Hughes uses a very similar metaphor, right? That the relationship between poetry and criticism is one of the relationship between vegetation and fertilization, between li- literally, he, he uses the word manure. And in both cases, in both Twain and Hughes's cases, there's some ambiguity but it seems as though what they're saying is the art is the manure, right? And the criticism is the vegetation. That is also one potential way of reading Oscar Wilde's essay. You know, the last answer drew my attention, this idea that only in the current media environment have we perhaps reached the sort of maturity of that idea, Mm. right? Where now the production of fiction, the production of poetry might be understood as something that is the stepping stone towards getting the criticism, which is what most people are consuming, right? Mm-hmm. At least in the context of bourgeois literary culture, as you mentioned at the very outset, we are probably reading more book reviews, more critical essays, more para-academic critical work than we are fiction and poetry itself. Or at least that's what we end up circulating and having conversations Mm -hmm. about. That is the stuff of viral media. Mm -hmm. Is this a realization of the sort of arc of what criticism does? Is it just a a virtue of this age of media and of the oversaturation, abundance that we've talked about? 
it's interesting to me that going back to Hughes, Wilde, Twain, there is a recognition of criticism ascending from being the stuff that was maybe the sort of necessary evil to make the industry of literature churn to being the thing which is literary culture. Mm. Yeah, well, let me just take an opportunity, if I may, to chill for an excellent book of what's being called hybrid criticism, but this really does it an underservice, which is We the Parasites by Alex Maracini, who takes the notion implicit in the description by Twain that the critic is a kind of, and here she's speaking of art criticism, but that the critic is a kind of parasite in the literary system and really rolls with that in a way to discuss the ways in which the traditional boundary, she, she turns the traditional boundary or the traditional norm of the primary and secondary text on its head and reads the act of criticism as a kind of entomological, in the sense of insects, pursuit. And I, I found that particular book, which it's about Sai Twombly mostly, but also describes her own building and formation as a critic, as well as the conditions in which she was writing, namely in London during the pandemic, to be just a sort of exemplary instance of the sort of strong literary qualities of, of criticism at present. And to your point, what we're dealing with now, and we've been dealing with this for quite some time, for at least 20 to 30 years, is a recognition of an abundance of production. And this is, I think, the key fact that you've definitely put your finger on that uh, ought to be the sort of premise and starting point for conversations about the socio sociology of literature today, which is that there is more produced now than anyone could hope or imagine to read in the over the course of, of their lifetime so theoretically speaking you would we would no one would ever have to write again and we would still have too much to read going forward many generations hence obviously that's not going to prevent people from contributing to that for all sorts of various different reasons and so i think that the one of the reasons you're seeing this displacement if if you accept my premise that a displacement is in fact happening both at the level of a readership and at a generic level, right? So what we're looking at is the popularity of narrativized criticism and personal essay criticism and books in which reading other books, whether fictional or not, is a major factor. That is definitely a response to the situation at present, which is that amongst this class that you're talking about, our lives are very much mediated by the fact that we are reading and we are readers. And if you're reading, whether it's you're reading a novel by a young writer or a work of criticism by a, a young writer, the one thing that, that everyone can be said to share is that the, everyone's a reader. And that reading, depending on where in the, I don't want to call it a hierarchy, but where in the level of recherche-ness of the particular genre you're interested in, the further out you go, the more likely it is the case that significant parts of your life will be spent in the activity of reading, whether that's uh, reading a novel, whether that's, you know, doom scrolling Twitter. We spend inordinate amounts of time consuming language. And that is a thing that at a minimum the contemporary novel has had to deal with because in order to describe the way we live now, we have to describe the way we live now as mediated by the very sorts of things that we're reading when we are reading, right? Now, 
Theoretically speaking, you could imagine a world in which no one writes novels anymore because we're so interested in producing criticism about novels such that criticism about novels outstrips the fertile manure and can no longer grow. And so the abundance turns into a sort of stagnation. One can imagine that happening. I don't think that will happen for a number of sort of practical reasons. But I do think that what we're living in is a particular phase And again, this phase is still going back 20 to 30 years of intense self-consciousness about the ways in which our life is mediated. And literature, whether it's poetry or fiction, uh, is doing its job and reacting to those conditions and metabolizing those conditions and reproducing those conditions for our consideration in a way that other media don't do in a very sophisticated way. When you look at film, now film is a medium that's been around for well over 100 years now, but film does not do, say what you will about the quote-unquote internet novel, the books that are being held up as internet novels are infinitely more sophisticated in their descriptions of what it is like to engage with social media and translating the experience of that into a literate form than film. Film is extremely simplistic in its depictions of these particular things. I'm thinking of shows and films that have tried to do this with little pop-ups on the screen. It's really, yeah, it is really bad. Yeah. And I think writers deserve credit for uh, thinking that through in a, in a much uh, more sophisticated fashion and critics as well for remarking upon this. But yeah, literature is doing what it always does, is it's digesting its moment. And of course, the definitely key thing about our moment is its fundamentally mediated quality. And the problem for film, just to give us as as an example, is it is extremely boring to watch one scroll Twitter. The reason it's very difficult to produce biopics of writers is extremely boring to watch people write in a literal sense or read in a literal sense. And yet so much of our life is taken up by that. And I think that what is happening now is that because that's the case, there has been a, if you buy the sort of Jameson scene and discourse distinction, there has been a transfer of the attempt to represent contemporary life as a representation not of scene, because the scene itself is uninteresting, the scene of media consumption is uninteresting, to the discourse of media consumption, which is interesting. And so these forms that are being produced, which are ostensibly, which are in fact critical forms, are being married to narrative forms and personal essay forms. And I think that's a very exciting development at a purely generic level. And again, there's a perpetual state of crisis, like, uh, oh yeah, no one's reading books anymore, no one's interested in literature anymore, literature is just one media among other media, but the truth of the matter is that if you are the sort of person who is interested in really having a representation of the world as you live it, it's still the gold standard for that. This has been the ninth episode of Criticism Limited, the eighth season of the American Vandal podcast from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. For more about this episode, including a complete bibliography, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash parasite. When we spoke earlier this year, Ryan was still looking for a publisher for Context Collapse. About a week ago, Publishers Weekly reported that it was now under contract with an independent house, Seven Stories Press. 
Next episode, we'll be going inside the millennialist literary media infrastructure of BookTube, BookTok, Wattpad, and more. I'll leave you with Ainahi Adoro, who I asked following our discussion of literary media if she had any recommendations. Almost instantly, she morphed from academic critic to blogger. I would say two works of fiction. I actually have them here. Hold on. Let okay. me grab it. Um, I would say this book, it's called And Then He Sang a Lullaby by Anikayode Somtuchuku. It is a book that centers queer love among two Nigerian men. And it is beautiful, very tender. I haven't read that many books that represent queer love within an African context mm. in such a beautiful and tender way. It lets you see the kind of systemic struggles and violences, mm -hmm. but it also really centers the humanity and the affirmation and the life and the love that makes these relationships so beautiful and worth fighting for. Another book I have is one second. Yeah. It is. Oh, yeah. Another book I read that I really loved is Azukar by Ni Aikwe Parks. He's mm -hmm. a Ghanaian writer. It's a very strange book. It's about a Ghanaian student in the 20th century, I think, who went to Latin America and is living in this village. And he's a farmer. Um, he's an agricultural student. It's very odd. But it's this kind of Marquez-esque story about a love affair between him and this woman with this really powerful resonance of the land and the earth as the backdrop, it's beautiful. The writing is luminous. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and they, they both came out very recently. Very this recent. Yeah. Car by Ni Aikwe Parks. And, and then a, he sang a lullaby by Annie Kayodi Somtochuku.